Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Inside the Banjoverse, a podcast exploring Roots Music's great artists. Please do rate and subscribe. It makes a huge difference. And let all your friends know to listen. This is Enda Scahill from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry. There's actually four of us and mostly just one banjo. That's me. Teresa O'Grady is one of Ireland's best loved and best known banjo players. This interview is one that I did as a commission piece for the American Banjo Museum and it's a wonderful interview that goes into Teresa's upbringing, her background in Irish music growing up in England and her development of incredible teaching skills as she is a renowned banjo teacher. Her latest and debut album, Banjo Easter, is available on all good musical platforms. O'Grady, the Banjoista. That was the, the name of your debut album. The, my only disappointment, Teresa, was that Banjoista kind of. I thought that maybe you'd be making a, like a coconut uh, latte at the same time as playing banjo, like the combination of barista and banjoist. <laughs> yeah, I do that regularly at home, and uh, that's yeah. my. Uh, yeah, I do actually. Yeah. We're big coffee fiends in this house. So, yeah, so I have every kind of a coffee contraption under the sun. Yeah, Wonderful. in this well, house. Yeah. You are one of Ireland's premier banjo players, a very prolific uh, banjo teacher. I know this for a fact. And, um, and I'm a big fan of your playing. You've, you've quite a different style to me. And, it, you know, we, we met up during the summer. Um, I think that was very apparent that the way that you play the banjo is a lot lighter than the way that I play the banjo. I, I, I hit it. Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of, you stroke it. <laughs> as long as you don't hit people with it, I think you're on a way there, end. I definitely won't. Yeah. Well, some people need to be hit with a banjo. Uh, well, yeah, that's what, that's what they say, isn't it? If you've got a good slap of the back of the banjo across the back of the head. <laughs> tell me tell me how you got started on banjo, how you developed the style that you have now. Did it happen naturally? Did you need very careful instruction? 
Was there things um, that needed to be corrected at the start? Yeah, it's, it's funny actually that we, we, we talk about this and I've actually spoken to two different pupils about this already this week about, um, you know, if you if if you didn't go off on your own tangent for three or four years and took instruction from someone, um, would you be better? Would you be a better player? Would you be a worse player? Depending on, I suppose, who you got the instruction from. Um, that that was the, the core of a, a couple of conversations I actually had this week with a with a couple of pupils. For me, um, I, yeah, I'd say I had like really good instruction from a really good teacher when I was a kid. So while there, and I think you know, with kids, there's always an element of that natural ability. But you have to kind of round it off then with instruction. So, yeah, like I, I would have had, like I know, technique-wise, it would have been, you know, this is how you hold it. And I think as a as a child as well, you do a lot of copying. So you you do what you see, um, and then you, like I would have had, you know, good instruction for, well. You know, use your plectrum like this, use your left hand like this, positioning, things like getting in and out of high Bs, that kind of thing. So I think, yeah, while I had, like I, I know I had natural ability for music, but then to hone that into banjo playing, it was a lot of, yeah, really very good direction, good instruction. So do you think that it's a very technical instrument in that I mean, every instrument is technical, right? Apart from the baron, <laughs> which is why I, I can't help but become controversial immediately. I I find that the banjo is an extremely technical instrument, and that it's a very harsh mistress, if you wish. In that, in that, if you don't have the decent techniques down from the start, it's a really steep uphill battle. Yeah, I, I do. I do think that. I think there there are there are an element of you know put your fundamentals together um, first. I think, and it is. I think like it's the most the most unforgiving instrument. I really think so. You know, like it, it's uh, it's not like when you hit a note on the banjo, that's it. It's gone. That you don't, you can't you can't try and scoop around it and bring it back and pretend it wasn't a mistake. <laughs> a mistake is a mistake, no matter where you, no matter what way you go at it on, on the banjo. So I think um, it's, if you, if you can ground that element, I suppose, of technique in first, because there's so many things going on at both ends of the banjo. And then within there's so many things that are going on at both ends of the banjo when you start breaking it down into even smaller sections. It's just like there is so much, even to strike one note, there's so much going on. You have to use, you know, put a finger on a note. If you're going to play a chord, you need two strings. What direction does your plectrum go in? Where is your wrist? How, which parts are moving and which parts are not moving? There's an awful lot going on. There is. And I do think, like you say, it's it's an unforgiving one then as well at the end of it, if you just get it really wrong. So do you think there are natural banjo players? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I would, I would see that, I suppose you, you look at that more so when you're teaching kids, but you, you can see 
like that whole relaxation thing. You know, you, you, you can you can see, I think, in a in a child, especially even when they start playing a tin whistle, you can see that if their hands are nice and relaxed and their posture is nice and relaxed, that they're not kind of completely tense with everything they're doing. I, you can see, yeah, you can see someone who is naturally, naturally geared towards playing a banjo, definitely. So is that how you accept students? You kind of have a look and see how, yeah. stress, how stressed they are first? <laughs> stressed <again. laughs> well, it's probably, it's probably the same as, I would imagine, it is the same as like flute players looking at the shape of people's mouths to see, like, would they naturally be a good flute player from the shape of their mouths? It is something that I... Yeah, believe it or not, I I only heard a documentary the other day about that in the, on uh, on I don't know what program it was on something on a radio the other day about um, a girl who was um, teaching flute and it was for I think actually for a music generation they're looking to try and encompass uh, the older generation of Irish people this year to go off and learn an instrument. And that was one thing she said. She actually looks at the shape of people's mouths to see whether they would be a good flute player. So I think when I when she touched on it on the radio and said it, I was like, God, yeah. Do you know what I do, I do that? Like I look at, you know, kids' hands. Are they, you know, are they going to be able to reach the notes on the banjo? Because it is a big stretch, no matter what way you look at it. There's a lot more journey to take between two notes on a banjo than there is on most other instruments. Uh, two two thoughts pop to mind. One is that uh, there's a branch of cosmetic surgery available here. <laughs> flute, flute playing lip uh, adjustments. <laughs> and the other is I, I usually paid more, most attention to the mother that was dropping the kid off to see... Did you- for no, not, what not che- reason? Not, not, not checking out their <laughs> flutable lips to see whether the kid really wanted to play the banjo or not. Yeah, that's a, that's a, an interesting. Uh, yeah. that, that is an interesting one as well. Who's the interested party? The mother yeah. or the child? Yeah, because yeah. yeah. the the kid may develop an interest, but oft, not often. From time to time, you will get the the kid who wants to play hurling or wants to play sport or video games, and the mother who wants them to yeah. play the banjo. And <laughs> yeah. you know, listen, it's never going to work. But I do, I do think though as well that it also takes a certain type of kid who wants to play a banjo. I do, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Um, it is. Yeah, it's a certain type of child. Generally, the more boisterous, louder <laughs> children in in the Tim Whistle class will eventually go down the road of playing the banjo. That's Why? that's my theory. On Why it. do you think that is? Oh, because it's just that kind of instrument, isn't it? I think it's it's just um, loud and obnoxious. Well, now that's it. There's two words you can put into a sentence, and the third word is banjo. <laughs> There is a particular, yeah, there's a particular type of lunacy to most banjo players that you would meet on the circuit that may not be there with other instruments, yeah. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, like you're, I think, um, you know, your your fiddle and flute players are, they're just a bit more on an even keel than most of your banjo players, I think, to be honest with you. That's because they uh, have nicer lips. 
Yeah, that probably has a lot to do with it. (laughs) Banjos are definitely... Short, short, stubby fingers, that's the problem. (laughs) Who now? The banjo players? No, the the fiddlers. The flute players and the flute players, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, some of them do. But they're... uh, No, there's definitely a type. There's a type that plays a banjo. Sure, look at us. (laughs) I know, type B. (laughs) <laughs> I'd say D or E, and uh, <laughs> never mind B. Oh, you oh, must dear. you must miss the crack, uh, and, and it, because we're all at home, and my God, like Irish music is such a social. I don't know if there's a folk music like it. Maybe maybe bluegrass, though they they do tend to spend an awful lot of time sitting in a circle playing the one tune over and over without any disrespect to them. <laughs> Irish music, we all just get together and we all play the tune. And you can, you you know, five people can play the same tune at the same time and play five different versions at the same time. Absolutely. And it's yeah. awesome. You must miss it. It still you, works. Yeah. yeah. You must miss I the do. Yeah. Miss the, um, yeah. And it's, and it's not, it's not even like, it's not even just the music either. Like it, it is the whole, the whole social event of it. You know, it's meeting up with your, fellow musicians and going for dinner and you know or the ordinary things you do with your friends because sure most you know most of my friends are musicians as well so yeah you'd miss you'd miss a whole aspect of it the play the playing ah oh, yeah it was funny there was a guy there was a guy in New Zealand um they of course they got to have a normal they have a normal enough life in New Zealand. So there's a guy that I'm teaching out there at the moment and him and his mates has got together for a Christmas session just just the week before Christmas. And he just sent me an audio clip on WhatsApp. He just said, oh, listen, wishing you a Merry Christmas, all the best. I'm at the weekly session. This is our Christmas session. Sent me the clip. And I'm not joking. My heart sank. I was like, oh, I'd give anything. give anything to be there and it was that you know that whole kind of you could instantly hear the musicianship between them you could hear the glasses clinking in the background of the pub you could hear the till ringing you could hear like there was just so many things about it just in a 30 second clip I was like yeah I really really miss that it was so strange like because you know I think most people have kind of got through this year so they've got through you know you've got through the summer and you missed all the festivals and then you were like maybe maybe we'll get a tune at Christmas and then that didn't happen then either and you kind of you know you you keep kind of pushing it forward a bit and you're kind of not really thinking about how much you miss of the whole aspect of it but for that 30 seconds I was like damn it anyway yeah I'd give anything to be sitting in a pub having a few tunes I really would do you how do you compare uh, teaching online to teaching in person are there any advantages to it I yeah I think there is to be honest Enda um I think it's probably it's probably easier to hone in on certain things. Do you know what? Especially technique. I don't know when you're, you know, when you're when you're trying to show somebody, you know, exactly maybe something that's going on with the left hand or going on with the plectrum or, you know, it, you can you can really, you know, obviously cameras everything, all the rest of it. Like you can really 
kind of drag your camera in, show what's going on with a certain technique, um, you know, camera angles, that kind of thing. I, I just think it's, it's not, it's not the worst environment to be teaching in. Probably if, you know, in a, in a live situation, obviously you can, you know, stand over someone to a degree and say, okay, you know, fix the angles of your banjo, fix this, fix that. You know, you can do certain elements of that, but I, you see an awful lot. And I, I think I, I personally, when I'm looking at someone playing now through a screen, I really do hone in on, um, you know, re- really hone in on their hands, you know, and maybe a lot of pain. I'm probably paying an awful lot more attention to that than I ever did when I was teaching in a live situation where you're, I suppose you can concentrate your, your time on one hand or the other, you know, one end of the banjo or the other. So yeah, I, I, I kind of, I kind of like it. I, I can't say now I'm allergic to it at this stage, even though I've been doing it for over a year or so. Um, I quite enjoy it. I, I really do. I think you can maybe cut through a lot of crap as well. You know, when you're when you're online and you're just like focusing in on certain aspects of people's playing. And would you? Because the one thing that's missing, of course, is the ability for you to play along with somebody that you're teaching. And I, I guess that the fact that you can't do that means that you have more time to do exactly what you've been describing. But like, do you get do you get them to mute their mute their mic and you just play and they play yeah not that you're going to pick up an awful lot but i mean they'll get to experience it but i but i think i think for say for the benefit of if if you're if you're trying to that that's the element i would miss of it from a live point of view that when you're trying to help someone maybe develop rhythm like that there's there's nothing like so you've been there yourself sitting in a class of 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 10 pupils in Milltown Melbourne and all that racket going on around you. But if you, if you can kind of stress and play rhythm very, very deliberately in, in that kind of an environment, you can actually hear the room coming round to what you're doing eventually. Mm-hmm. And I know it, it, that kind of thing takes time. Um, but that was that was one exercise I suppose I really missed from not having a live class of of and and not having a live class of people, not just a one to one, but I mean where that kind of it's quite infectious when you're in a in a workshop environment like that where if you're if, especially with things like rhythm, where you're trying really trying to hone in on stuff like that, you can actually you know, you can hear it beginning to spit like the coronavirus. It starts to spread around the room. That's a good, uh, that'd be a good tagline for your website. Teresa, yeah, be great, lessons, it? Like the coronavirus. It spreads like wildfire. <laughs> Would you, what do you think about banjo styles? And be, uh, to refer back to what you were just talking about, I remember hearing... Uh, a young fiddle player playing online. And I knew before I read the description that she was a student of Brian Conway's because she looked like Brian when she played. And she was like 11. And she had the same mannerisms and the same, you know, and I, I you could just, you could see that immediately. Do you do you think the same thing is available on, on banjo going back to the whole technique thing and everything? Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't, because I, I think, say, especially with, say, that age group of, of kids, they they do what they see. They really, really do. Like, um, I know there's, there's a kid I've been teaching her since she was maybe about 10 or 11, um, Sinead Johnson, and literally, like, if you put, say, if you put a camera on my hand, plectrum hand, and put a camera on hers, it'd be very hard to pick between them. And a lot of other teachers have said that. They're like, oh, she just has your plectrum hand. <laughs> you, you can, I think kids <laughs> kids do that in general. They they will mimic what they, what they can see. I, I mean, obviously, there's certain aspects of it, and they'll just adapt to their own, their own, you know, doing as well. But um, yeah, I, th- I think you can, you can, you can pick, you can pick kids out of their their teachers in an awful lot of ways, and then that leads on then to different styles. It absolutely does. I think, yeah, there there are there are so many different styles of banjo playing. Like it, it it's. But it's a totally new phenomenon because, like, fiddle, flute have had hundreds of years of geographical styles. Banjos, literally, what is it, around 40 years? Yeah, it's very, very small in the bigger scheme of things, I suppose. Um, and I, and I, like, if you were to roll the clock back and say, where, where did it change? Because, like, if you listened back to say the likes of the Flanagan brothers and, you know, listen to what they did with their music at the time. The banjo was really used very much as a rhythm. It, it, it wasn't um, like while, while they were obviously playing the melody, it was still, there was still that kind of pulsy kind of banjo playing within it. So it was used very much as a, as a rhythm part of what they were doing but then if you fast forward then to where 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 is that moment in time that the banjo moved from being the rhythm to more of a melody and being able to express itself more as a melody instrument i would have to say it was barney mckenna that did that like it's that turning point of doing maybe more fiddle type ornamentation on the banjo like he to me for me he would be that that turning point where it went from just playing a very plain type melody with lots of rhythm in it to playing the melody with lots of ornamentation in it and then if you probably drill down from there um you know you're looking at your Mick O'Connor's, your John Carty's, and then that filters down then even further into the next generation and the next generation. I'm not saying John Carty's old now, just in case John hears this. <laughs> Is it a very, I mean, my, my big influence would have been Jerry O'Connor, who, of course, who immediately brought an American flavour to Irish banjo. And he was completely out there in terms of the Irish tradition. Yes. And I think he treated his two instruments very differently because he's also a fiddle player, isn't he? And so he, you know, he doesn't play the banjo like a fiddle, if you, if you know what I mean. 
Yeah, but do, do you hear do you hear an American influence when you, in your in your banjo? I mean, in my music there was always an American influence. It was I think it was latently there, always waiting to come out. And as soon as I heard Jerry, I was like, "This is what it's supposed to sound like." Yeah, <laughs> is that the same for you? Yeah, I would say so. And I think I think that there's that. Um, there's that that element as well of it 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 being that very ornate type of melody instrument as well like that that was probably the 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 bit of say trad banjo players i know there was never that many of them anyway if you if you roll back you know past past the the 40s and 50s um but that that's what the likes of, say, Jerry brought into it then as well was that little twist and turn of it being this other step that, you know, bringing, I suppose, bring, bringing elements of trad music more in towards an American sound as well, even with the twists and turns Jerry would make playing a tune, you know, that that, that would have that influence in it then as well. And that is is also then very... Like it is still quite different to say if you take John's playing, take John Carty's playing and Jerry O'Connor's playing, like John is still very, very much, you know, it's it's hinged on the rhythm, but then there's all these little like flurries of ornamentation in it that you can hear bits of Jerry in some of what John does. You can hear bits of John in what Angelina Carberry does, you can like it's all it's and that leads to all of these different kinds of styles. Like there are so many different kinds of styles that bring it back then to okay, banjo playing has only been around for forty or fifty years, but God, it's very diverse, even as it stands at the minute. Mm. Do you Do not think? It is incredibly diverse, but I think it's a really fascinating instrument within the context of Irish traditional music because it came essentially from America. The forerunners of Irish banjo happened in America. And then the guy that made it famous, essentially, as you said, Barney McKenna, you know, mostly wasn't really playing what we would describe as traditional Irish music. He was in a very famous ballad band in the Dubliners. So it had this really kind of sideways entrance into now being considered a traditional Irish instrument. And, you know, if you go to the banjo competitions, it's like you have to play it in this traditional Irish style that came after its introduction into Irish music in the first place, which is kind of backwards and a bit funny. It is, yeah. It's a bit like, it's a bit of a chicane twist <laughs> to it, all right, with with what you're with with how it became part of traditional Irish music. It it's it's very much um yeah, it did take a bit of a U-turn if you think about it that way. But I I wonder though, as well underneath all of that, like if you if you take that turning point of Barney McKenna. But I wonder, I wonder what, um, okay, so you would have heard and we all heard the commercial end of Barney McKenna's playing and that would have been what he did with the Dubliners. And then from there then, I suppose the, 
the the inlet we got into what Barney could do was probably that series he did when he did that series. Did, did you ever see that? No. Ah, <laughs> you have got to go and Google the green limit, green linnet. So they took off basically in a car and traveled across Europe and stopped off in different towns and basically took the instruments out and played and met the locals and all the rest of it. But that, like, I, I can remember seeing that, well, maybe I was about uh, maybe 15 or 16. And I remember looking at it going, oh, my God, like you always had elements of, of you always knew, I think you always knew what Barney McKenna could do if he was sitting down and just playing tunes. But I had never actually heard it. I'd never heard Barney doing that because you only ever got small rifts of it or or bits of it in between the songs it, when they were doing when he played with the Dubliners, and then all of a sudden you had this whole program of himself and Tony McMahon playing tunes, and it was electrifying music, absolutely unbelievable music, and that like when I I remember seeing that and seeing. Um, like I'd say, there was no, when they did that, there was no editing within what they were doing for filming the actual tunes. It was literally like, right, lads, come on, let's get the instruments out and play a few tunes. Unbelievable. The playing was just unreal. Um, it was a huge mixture of really ornamentated playing with all the chords because Barney obviously knew chords on the banjo inside out. And it was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I'll send you the link. <laughs> Do, because I've never heard of that. I just ah, it's Barney epic. didn't come across Absolutely. my register as a as a banjo player, except for Sweet Sixteen and you know, the songs in the Dubliners. Um, you know, my first introduction to banjo was was Jerry O'Connor, essentially. Even though I've been playing it for a few years and that, that but that was the light bulb moment. Uh, and I never went and looked back to to what Barney was doing. So that's fascinating. I'd love to listen to that. Oh yeah, it, there's probably they maybe did six or seven. It was a series, and so there was about six or seven programs within that series. Um, it, it was just mind blowing for me. It was mind blowing because you really got the other side of what Barney McKenna could do with a banjo. And that was, you know, that was that kind of, that was that point where you kind of went, ah, right. <laughs> For me, that that was, you know, if you were looking at kind of a timeline of where the banjo travelled from and to and where it is now today, that for me, he, Barney would be that turning point, I think, I think. Uh, do you ever wish you played a different instrument? Um. I I really love I'd really love to be able to play the fiddle well, <laughs> but I don't think I don't think I'd like to be a fiddle player. Put it that way, Do you know. It, it's <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds awful, doesn't it? No offense to any fiddle players that see this. Uh, it, I I would. It, it's my it's kind of my guilty pleasure. I play the fiddle quite a lot really badly 
I am like Sherlock Holmes, really. <laughs> Do you know that? Like, there's there's plenty of scratching and scraping going on. I would love to be a a good fiddle player, but I just can't move a bow that long when I'm used to using a piece of plastic this big. <laughs> that's that's the biggest problem. Yeah. Um, other than that, I I really think. Um, I, I would love to have, and I, Jesus, I still could. There's nothing stopping me. I would love to be able to play the piano. You know, I, as in, I would love to sit down and actually do my music theory properly because I really have no music theory at all apart from writing notes on a page and hoping for the best that they're right and they're not always right. Um, but I, yeah, piano. I think like it's such a it's such a great instrument, a piano, because you can see everything. It's all there. All you should do is press a note, and it's there. You haven't got to put a finger and play a string or nothing. You just it's instant. It's instant, and it's in tune. And which you is put, great. You put strings on it, and they stay on it for decades. Yeah. Not <laughs> <laughs> every three gigs. <laughs> yeah. And like you don't need a new plectrum every every time you you pick off a banjo. Do you get frustrated with the um, the lack of what what I would see is a lack of consistency, perhaps, in pick material, in different types of picks, the different designs, strings. Like I find you're never really a hundred percent sure what it's going to sound like when you restring it. You're hoping for the best, but it's it's not consistent. Yeah, and but but I that probably has probably has a lot to do as well just with the the makeup of the banjo. You know, you're you're relying on you know the the head of the banjo always being at a certain tension. And should that all of them all of them things have to have to move when you're playing an instrument that has so many mechanical parts to it. You know, things get loose, things get tight. You know, all that kind of stuff that's going on. So. You know, even, you, you know, the bridge is not fixed to the banjo, so that's going to move too. It, there's so many bits of it that I suppose make it inconsistent. Um, I think I, I've, I've finally found picks that I really like, which make a huge difference, um, and do, they're consistent. Do tell. What are they? Well, they, they're these little Alice guitar picks I had a little box there, but I don't know what I've done with it. They're, they're, they're just the, I don't know if you can see that. I don't know which end of the phone that camera is Never on. Never come across those before. Do you not? No. You get, I tell you what, they, they come in this little, it's really cool. Where is it? Oh, there it is. They look quite hard. I'll show you this. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Sure. Look, I play with a, like a brick. So you get this little box, right? Ooh, I like that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's really cool. It's got one of them poppy lids woohoo and then in there <laughs> i know a lot of me gadgets um i'm not a technical person but i do like gadgets um so in here you get um three different grades of pick you get a 0.46 a 0.7 something and a 0.8 something so you can even like find the ones you really like and they're just they're brilliant and they're actually very very durable like they, they, they take a serious amount of play and abuse, which is great. 
then you haven't got to use a new pick every gig or every time you sit down to play a few tunes. Do you know how many, do you know how many picks I use in each gig? And I mean use and throw throw away minimum of two and three if it's really loud and I have to dig in. Do you not throw them to the crowd? Sometimes they sneak up on stage and steal them, and I'm like, "What are they going to do with it?" Oh, of course. Kind of a half yeah, but pick. that's just a Lickish, yeah, but maybe. that's like robbing. <laughs> we used to rob the posters off the gigs. We used to go to the pub doors. <laughs> yeah, well, posters, but so it's, little, the, bits it's of the same thing. They're just looking for a momentum. That's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you should do like what they do in Wimbledon. You know, woo! Like with the tennis ball when they're finished, you need to start doing that with your picks. At the yeah, games. you run the risk of a great deal of embarrassment when you come to flick a pick off the stage and the wind blows it back at you. So I'm not even going to go down that route. I'm a banjo player. Oh, I'm practiced in avoiding embarrassment as much as possible. Yeah, well, sure. Like when you have to stand behind a banjo, it's bad enough. Uh, what what kind of strings do you use? I I, I feel very jealous of uh, like my brother when he goes and he spends one hundred and twenty dollars on four strings, and I'm like, they must be yeah. awesome. And I'm putting yeah. silicon wrapped, uh, <laughs> you know, electric guitar strings on my banjo because they last yeah, more, that, more than one gig. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah, you you you're like you're like in in the bigger scheme of things, like banjos are are cheap maintenance instruments really you know like the strings are whatever i use electors on the on these mostly i think um but i but i've you know dabbled with phosphor bronze didarios and different different things but i kind i like i like electors because there's a there's a really i think there's a nice clean sound of them and and they work particularly well with the Alice Picks. There you go. So if Alexa or Alice Picks would like to send me some merch. <laughs> they, they, no problem. I can put my, I'll put my postcode onto the end of this and you'll find oh, me. Awesome. So do you absolutely hate new banjos or do you just prefer vintage? I just prefer vintage. Now, having said that, I have to say I was wholeheartedly impressed when I played yours the day that I was down at your house. The I new, have to the, say the, for the new neck a banjo. new banjo. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I really, really was. Um, and I think it had a lot to do with, well, it, it instantly had a lot to do with the sound. Like I've never played a new banjo that sounded vintagey, if you know what I mean. So I have to say... I really enjoyed playing that that day and it has stuck in my head since. So there you go. That's a good thing. But I just, I think it's the whole with the vintage banjos. It's, oh, it's, it's like, it's everything. It's the trouble they went to when they made them. It's the engravings and the inlays and the probably just them being so individual as well, but there's no, two of them really the same so you love a bit of bling is that what you're trying to say i do i do i'm very fond of a bit of bling yeah i'm not really a big jewelry person i prefer to have blingy banjos (laughs) (laughs) i like a bit of bling on my knee (laughs) yep (laughs) absolutely so (laughs) yeah have you found the perfect banjo or yeah 
Oh, you have? Yeah. Wow. No okay, doubt. Well, tell, yeah. us, tell us about Absolutely. it. You might even show it to me. Yeah, I will. It's this one. This is the Epiphone Deluxe. Well, I can't see myself in that camera end, but I'm hoping that you can no, see. No, I can see it. I can see your there. Christmas tree as well, which is awesome. Oh, can you? Oh, of course you can, yeah, in the reflection on the head. Um, yeah, it took it took a while. I, I'd say I played, well, I, I, I've always kind of had, and when I, when I switched from my um, banjo, the, the, I originally had a James Burton banjo, which was made in the UK, really, actually a really nice banjo. That would have been the, the banjo my parents got me when I was 10 or 11. That was that was my first um, proper banjo, um, and I played that right up until ugh, probably nearly seventeen or eighteen years ago, and then the first Epiphone I had is an Epiphone concert, and I have that there as well. But I was just, I suppose, I was looking for the perfect banjo in in every way like the original the first one i had the epiphone concert didn't have an original epiphone resonator on it so i wanted i wanted the whole lot i wanted the full package so i sent joe diamond off on a a mission to get me an epiphone deluxe which i really liked the look of when i started doing a bit of drilling down into what i liked and stuff this is the back and it's all gold plated and they went to a lot of trouble with beautiful carvings and in engravings on the metal inlay just immaculately done um and he went off anyway and i this is how individual they really are i i i played at least four different epiphone deluxe banjos before I played this one and was very on the fence about the other four. But this one, just whatever it was, it just all completely worked. Everything worked. Everything about it just instantly played.
it's com- is it frustrating? It's frust- it's deeply frustrating to me that you can take four either brand new banjos, uh, four clarines that are all made exactly the same way, and they're all completely different. And you can take like I could go online right now and buy well if there was one available in Epiphone Deluxe and then get it and then just it never being a decent banjo. I, that frustrates the living daylights out of me. I do think that that's something that Tom Neckville seems to have worked on really well and that he's got a lot of consistency because his building process is so technical. And is so when he so when he builds you a banjo like are the necks the, all the same spec are you know the to say the the, the depth the width of the neck is that is that all his measurements or is there input in it for you to maybe have some input into that? How does, how does that work? Cause I reckon back in the day, the player definitely got input into what they got from definitely from Epiphone. I really do think that. Yeah, I do. Because I know like I, I, I think this is, I don't know what this is going to sound like now, but there was definitely ladies' banjos and <laughs> fellas' banjos. <laughs> and like I've heard, I've heard banjos being referred to. If you if you read back through old archives and bits and pieces, I've heard them referring to ladies' banjos. And I think in general, they just made the neck and the 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 you know the the scale of it slightly smaller yeah and even the like the, the the actual pot size of the banjo or the the depth of the flange to fit the resonator on slightly smaller ladies banjos i do think the the person the player definitely had input at the making stage of some of these banjos probably the probably the ones you know the the upper end ones um that were obviously not so mass produced that you would have been in the factory at at the time of production Mm. so does tom do that i mean he's made two banjos for me essentially Uh, and one of them is a a very unique hybrid of an irish uh, kind of an irish pot end and then a five string neck so that you get the resonance um, but I would have sent him, you know, neck width measurements so that it wasn't a big wide five string neck that I couldn't, you know, manage with. And then the, 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 the true Irish tenor banjo that we designed is very much based on Irish scale. It's got, uh, you know, an Irish neck length and it'd be very similar to an Epiphone. Now, it does have a radius neck, which is very, I, I, I do think that's more unusual that that that's not in that's not in the epiphones i do i think that makes a big difference to tone the other thing that he does use which is i I think is great is like really high quality materials so the frets are really high quality nickel like there's a very high percentage of nickel in them i've had three nearly four years of play on on the one that i bring on the road and there is literally isn't the slightest indentation in the frets and as we've covered i'm a hard player you know and then there's not an awful lot of wood like the only wood really is is the neck itself like the pot and all of that um 
is is alloy material and i just think you don't get the same uh range of what's the word discrepancies when you're making something that's so uh, carefully tooled um and the other thing that i love about them and and this is again the reason that i've kind of strayed away from vintage is that like with something like the neckville banjo you can adjust every single thing on the road so the head tension in seconds the neck is completely adjustable uh, in seconds. Uh, you can actually take the neck off and put it in your pocket and then stick it back on the next night and you can get the banjo in perfect working order with very little technical ability. Yeah. And that like that is that that is well, especially for a player that's on the road, I would imagine like teasing out all of those aspects of making a banjo that's genius absolutely genius it really is because you can do the adjustments yeah and banjo i mean i think banjo likes humidity it likes and a bit of nice bit of moisture in the air uh, take mm. any banjo <laughs> and bring it up to the top of a mountain <laughs> in colorado and it just the head gets so tight yeah. And the ability to be able to lower that immediately and get the banjo sounding nice and then fly to Kentucky where it's like 98% humidity is like swimming on stage and, and then you can you can tighten it up instantly. That's why I'd find it really hard. I'd, I'd struggle to bring a vintage banjo on the road for those reasons because not being able to adjust yeah, they it. Don't, they don't travel. They they just, they in general, they don't travel anyway. Like I, I brought this over to... I just brought it to London, um, doing a workshop, a couple of gigs over there a few years ago. And I, I really, I just, you know, I wanted to, obviously to play my, my banjo. I didn't want to play a banjo that someone was going to just lend me. Cause you like that, you don't know what you're going to get. So, um, I brought it with me on the plane. It was on, you know, book to seat, away you go. Um, but God, am I, <laughs> it was a it was about a month after I got home that it got back to what it was just because of the journey, I think, more than anything and having to like let all the strings down for the flight and oh the poor thing was just yeah. It was it was traumatized after a one Ryanair flight. <laughs> Sorry, Michael O'Leary, he that's, won't be watching this anyway. That's the name of your next album, The Traumatized Banjo. Yeah. Or maybe it should be a book, a book, a kind of a self-help book for musicians. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, me and the banjo were traumatized after, <laughs> after it. I came, I came up with a, with a I, I was asked to do, to give a talk at an American workshop one time and they wanted, um, you know, like uh, your, the people that influenced you and, you know, a bit of background history. And I, I said, I wanted to talk about the difficulties of being a banjo player. And that I wanted, to, I, I wanted, to, I wanted to title the talk "Banjo Dysmorphia." <laughs> what I play and what you hear are two completely different things. <laughs> yeah, or what what I play, what you hear, and how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Do you su- do you, oh dear! Do you, do you suffer a bit with that? Oh dear, <laughs> completely. Oh Jesus, yeah. Even, um, I, yeah incredibly what the things that run through your head like when you're you know when you're standing behind the banjo putting out there your music versus what they're 
hearing. I just hope it sounds half decent most of the time, but um, yeah, the stuff that goes through your head. Oh, Jesus. Um, banjo, oh, yeah. banjo imposter syndrome. Yeah, but banjo trauma. It is trauma. <laughs> yeah. I think you have to be traumatized to want to play it in the first place. And then Well, it. there's an element of that, yeah. 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 There is definitely it, it's it's one of them things, isn't it, where you um I don't know I don't know if you remember one of the years that we this was before the, the recital in Milltown actually became an official recital. Um, not after, not long after poor Stephen Madden passed away, we decided to have like a banjo session on a Wednesday uh, in one of the pubs in town. A very short interjection to explain what Milltown is. It refers to the town of Milltown Malbay in County Clare in Ireland, where a summer school is held every July called the Willie Clancy Summer School. It's a mecca for Irish musicians. Many go there to attend the classes. Most people go there to play music in the pubs. And sessions can go from early morning until very early the following morning. It's almost a rite of passage for young musicians. I went there for 18 years in a row, loved every moment of it. It's a wild, wild week. It's amazing. So the first year it was just the, you know, just the, the teachers and we tell, you know, anyone that was in the classes, if you want to come in and sit down and play a few tunes for the afternoon. Brilliant. Great. So we were in, I think it was the players pub in the middle of, of Milltown. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the, the windows on the front of the players bar, when they're fully open, you can actually like you can lean into the pub from the street as you walk past. So um, what happened was the first year kind of went okay. And then the second year, obviously there was an awful lot more banjo players in there. And I was facing the window so you could see all the people walking by and it happened to be a gorgeous day outside. And there was just this instant reaction. So you could see someone walk by and they'd be like, oh, oh, what's that? What's that? Uh." And then they'd put their heads in the window and they either absolutely loved the fact that there was 30 banjos in there playing or they just got this whole like kind of like recoiling attitude at the window where they just go, oh, my God, that sounds horrendous. And they just keep walking. (laughs) It was such a funny reaction to see like some people were just like, oh, that sounds amazing. I love the sound of that, all them banjos together. And other people were just like, oh my God, that's just torture. And they just keep walking. <laughs> I'm convinced we, yeah. we, we Banjo 3, we sold out our very first gig in Galway Arts Festival. And bearing in mind the band, you know, the name described what it was at that time. It no longer does. And it was, not only was it sold out, but like there was 50 or 60 people around the block trying to get into the, the Roisin Dove in Galway. And Happy day. Yeah, I was convinced it's because there's all of these closeted banjo lovers. They won't really admit it in public. They're walking down the road and they see 30 banjos in a pub and they're like, yes, I didn't even know I needed this in my life. Yeah, <laughs> but but there there are so many people that it's one of the, it's a love hate. It's like Marmite. You love it or you hate it. And I think the sound of the banjo is exactly the same. You either instantly love the sound of it or you just can't inflict that on your ears, one or the other. 
You see, that's, I feel like it's my life's mission is to move the banjo away from Marmite to mar- mar- Marmalade that everybody kind of likes and some people love it. Yeah, a Marmite Marmalade thing. Yeah. There's my, there's my next book from Marmite yeah. to Marmalade. God, I'm on fire today, Teresa. With your banjo. <laughs> Oh Jesus. <laughs> oh Jesus, it must be the old internet. There is fog actually um, just rolling up the hill at the moment. And do you know what? The only time my internet did not work for me was when there was fog. Really? Believe it or not. Wow. Yeah, honest to God. Apart from that, I have um unbelievable internet connection up here, which is quite good considering I'm living on the side of a mountain. So... Why did it take you so long to record your your <laughs> debut solo album, Banjoista? Yeah, that that question. Why were you so old? Well, that's not what I said. <laughs> no, but someone did say that to me once. I was like, old? Really? Oh, yeah, I suppose I was. And um, why? I don't... Well, I suppose a, mi- a mis- mishmash of different things. Like, I had, at that stage fully committed to a music career if you like I had like I had ditched every other job that I wanted to do at that stage um I actually really enjoyed like found a real enjoyment in teaching and like to the point where I I really did question why didn't I do this years ago? Like, what was I thinking? I should have just done this like 10 years ago instead of only doing it three or four years ago. Um, and I suppose when you, like, when you're going to, when you're going to do that, then you, lucky, you need a bit of evidence, don't you? You need to say, well, I can actually play. Like you, you can't expect people to just take your word for it as a teacher. If, you're not going to put yourself out there musically as well and go, okay, for good or for bad, whatever you think of this, this is it. This is what I do. This is how I play. So, and then people then make their own decision on whether they, I suppose, whether they like your playing, whether they like your style, whether, you know, whether they are then going to like what you teach because you're obviously going to teach what you know. So that was probably a big part of it, I think. Yeah, it's a big ask, I, I feel, to do a solo banjo album, having done one many years ago. I was the opposite to you. I, I was afraid if I didn't get it out in my 20s that I'd be too late. I don't know what I was going to be late for exactly. And, and I haven't <laughs> felt the inclination to do another one since many, many years later. Um, but it's a big ask, isn't it? Neither because, will I. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Oh, it is. And uh, God, it just, it's a, it's a really hard thing to do. I, I, like I did, I, I really, I found it very tough because you're obviously your, your own worst critic. And, um, yeah, you do, you get to that point where everything you do, it kind of either begins to annoy you or you're not really sure whether you like that or, Oh, there's just so many elements of it. Like it, it's very soul bearing, put it that way. It really is, you know. <laughs> Do you feel like you have to have something to say? Uh, I mean, I had a lot to say uh, 20 years ago when I probably still have far too much to say. Uh, 
Do you think? Um, did I have a lot? No, I did. I didn't really have an awful lot to say apart from that's it. That's that's me. Like where put put it put it out there. This is what I I do. Um, I I no, that was that was, and I probably treated it a little bit like um, kind of like my music life journey so far kind of thing. So. There was there was there was plenty of padding. Put it that way, because I didn't do it when I was twenty and did it when I was forty. So there was plenty of you know bits and pieces to put in the sleeve notes. Put it that way. Yeah. If you could play music session or a concert with any musician, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, Jesus, Ender. Um. Well, I would I would have to say one of my music heroes I've always really liked his playing is Kevin Burke, the fiddle player. And I actually got to do that two years ago down in UL. And I didn't know that he – I was going down to teach a one-day workshop with the – they do like a master class for the – people doing their degree down there. Um, and I didn't realise that Kevin was also going to be doing a masterclass as well. And then we ended up having to literally cobble together a lunchtime concert for 20 minutes, half an hour. So that was that was like, oh, my God. <laughs> she got to play with one of my musical heroes as a kid. So and I've got a very I've got a very funny Kevin Burke story as well to tell you if you'd like to hear it. Yes, please. <laughs> so when we, we, we used to own a pub locally and Kevin, um, I think on his mother's side, they're actually like his mum is from the local area. She's not, she's not that far from Strand, where you played in the pub. Do you remember? Um, and so one day I was working in, in the pub and it was like a pub and a shop and all the rest of it. So this this guy came into the shop um, and we had like petrol pumps and everything. And he pulled in to get some petrol for the car. And uh, he walked in the door and I was like, oh, my God, he really looks like Kevin Burke. But then I was like, just the way your head is doing like um, 10 seconds somersault. And I was like, what would he be doing around here? Oh, God, maybe it's his brother, Noel. Noel is a fiddle player and he makes bows for fiddles and he lives over in Newport. I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe it's Noel. God, they really look alike. (laughs) I, this guy came in and he said, is it okay if I fill the car with petrol? I was like, yep, no problem. And then he came back in to pay and he said, um, I, I said to him, I said, sorry now for asking you this question. I said, but by any chance, are you Kevin Burke's brother? Kevin Burke is a he's a really well known fiddle player, and I went off into this little like rant about I just you know he used to he used to be like one of my fa- still is one of my favourite fiddle players from when I was a kid, and yeah, and I must have just tweeted on for about thirty seconds, and he goes, um, no, I'm not. <laughs> All right, sorry, sorry about that, and he went, no, I'm not, I'm not Kevin Burke's brother, I'm Kevin Burke. <laughs> I went, oh God, I just. 
died like if the ground could have swallowed me up if that was the time and the place to do it and I was just like oh my god but he was he was so gracious about it what he ended up saying was was listen I'm actually I'm I'm playing a gig tonight Matt Malloy's if you want to come along by all means (laughs) but I couldn't because I was working but that was my Kevin Burke story and then when I met him then two years ago down in UL um I I when we were doing the concert I said um I've actually got a story to tell about you Kevin and he goes what's that so I started my story about the petrol prompts and he goes you were the girl behind the counter that really embarrassed herself I was like yeah that was me (laughs) (laughs) so that was my that was my Kevin Burke story so I've got to I've got to live the dream I I got to actually play tunes with him that's an awesome story. I, yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I did I did that Limerick teaching series as well. And when I went down to play the lunchtime concert, it was uh, Charlie Lennon. Oh uh, who I think was <laughs> utterly distressed at having to play with a banjo pair. <laughs> <laughs> got over it. And it, was, got over it. it was okay. Charlie Lennon and Ushin McDiarmada. I mean two more fabulous <laughs> fiddlers. And they went and they played first and second, and then it was me. And I probably played the worst I've ever played in my entire life because I was just mesmerized. I was like, oh, my God, this is I've just listened to, you know, heavenly Irish music. OK, I'm going to plonk out a couple of jigs. And I was like, oh, please. I wanted to go home and give oh, up music no. and go drive a bus or something. It wasn't as pleasurable as your story. No, my, mine was, I have to say, was was just, yeah, it it was lovely. It was so nice. And he was... Kevin is just such a, he's such a lovely man, as well as being a great fiddle player. He's a really, really nice guy. Very funny, very articulate and just, yeah, very, very good now. Good company to be in for for a day. So he was. It's nice when you meet your musical heroes and they're decent people. Yeah, yeah, it is. It really is, you know. Wonderful. Teresa, thank you so much for taking the time, chat, all things You're very welcome. Yeah, Yeah. absolute pleasure. And, uh, yeah, you too, and it's great to great to see you. Yeah, even in lockdown. Even, yeah, we'll be here another while yet, but uh, we will get through this. I'd say so. <laughs> we will absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Awesome.
Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo3.com, to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time, Inside sports fans there's only one sports book in the great state of maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers betfred sportsbook at long shots is now open and is the only sports book in frederick offering cash betting on football basketball world soccer and more visit the betfred sportsbook at i-270 and md85 in frederick right next to long shots off track betting go to betfredsports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise must be 21 or older play responsibly for help call 1-800-GAMBLER it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.